Good morning, church at the Red Door, and good morning, friends. I want to welcome you all to uh, CRD this morning, and I want to welcome our uh, live streamers. I'm going to take just a few minutes this morning before Pastor Jeff comes up, and I'm going to give you just the facts, nothing but the facts, okay? I did want to just make a comment to our live stream um, followers and just thank you for joining us this morning it's a real blessing to have you with us also wanted to let you know on live stream that if you if god puts on your heart today that this is a day to come and and join in this new facility the new property that uh, god is putting together we have a place on the website where you can actually put a pledge in so if you go to the link and the tab and the drop down that says giving there is a link there that says pledge. So if you want to pledge, you don't have to give the money today, but if you want to pledge, we encourage you to do that. Okay, church, so let me just uh, start here by, let's talk about what we need, what the fund, the funding requirement is. I think maybe you've seen, uh, heard this number before, but the total amount of funds that were originally needed is 4510000 That's for the property. That also includes the money we need to get us to that point of closing escrow, the engineering, the consultant costs, et cetera. So that's kind of the price tag. The total pledges and gifts that we've received so far are 3,118,000, huh? How about that? <laughs> Praise the Lord. I tell you, it's amazing to see what God does through, through, through each of us. It's, uh, it's really, it's, it's stunning to me to see, since we announced this on February 9th, the From the Ground Up program, to see this kind of response. So if you subtract those two numbers, for those of you that have a mathematics degree, if you, <laughs> if you subtract those two numbers, what we have left is 1,392,000. And as I mentioned to those that are watching this on live stream, uh, you know, there's, you don't have to give the money right now, the cash right now, to write the check. But if God puts on your heart that this is the time, uh, we do have pledge cards. And uh, this might be the time for you to make a pledge to what God has planned here for Church at the Red Door. So $1,392,000 needed, $3,118,000 given. What percent? How, how about participation? This is the last number I want to look at, participation from our congregation. It stands at 28% today, which means there's still 72% um, that have not. And, you know, it's really whatever God puts on your heart. But as I think about that, I come back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. You know, it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's what I'd encourage all of us to do. Seek first, before we do anything else, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then let God put on your heart what he purposes for you. And if today is a day that he puts on your heart to purpose something, then we do have, like I said, the pledge cards outside. Ask you to engage and join with us in seeing what God is doing here at Church at the Red Door and what he has planned for the vision, for his purpose, for this valley for this time, for the people here. So I want to thank you very much, and I'll turn this over to Pastor Jeff. Thank you.
coronavirus. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I had to do that. I'm not afraid to hug. Not one soul in here. Not one soul am I afraid to hug. Well, maybe one or two, but anyway. No. Hey, welcome. Welcome to Church of the Red Door. We're thrilled that you're here. Before I get going here, uh, it would, uh, I would be remiss if I did not introduce to you a couple of our, we have our national links. A lot of you know about links. Some of you don't. Some of you may be new to the church. Uh, I still am I'm act actively, though not as actively as I was, but I'm still president of Lynx Players International. We have regional uh, folks around the country, and some of them are here today, and some of our national board is here. We've got board meetings the next few days, so I'm going to be uh, spinning out as fast as I can after the second service, and I just wanted to have them stand, if they wouldn't mind. If you're either Lynx staff or Lynx board, would you please stand at this moment? We've got some different folks from around the country. I can't even see who's there. Welcome. Welcome. I see the Hoppers back there, Jeff and Laura is there, and, and I see Ken and I believe Adele's there, and uh, there's uh, Mr. Martin, King Martin, King, what a name, King Martin, King Martin, that's Casey Martin's dad for the, many of you who knew uh, Casey and is now the coach at Oregon, but uh, had his issue with riding a golf cart on the tour all those years ago, went all the way to Supreme Court, and King's been with this ministry longer than I have. He has been with Lynx for, I don't know, King, how many years now? 25 years of faithful crossing the Jordan kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, he could, I don't know that King and, and, of course, Ken as well and Dell and everybody, I don't know that you could have imagined, you know, the number of groups now that exist around the country and many of them right here in this valley and uh, Marty Jacobus and, and Barbara overseeing that. So it's an exciting time, man. This is an exciting time. We've, we've started, a, I've started, we started a few new groups just in this last few weeks. So, um, we're thrilled to do that, and in some ways, I was uh, giving a little uh, presentation. We had we had invited our neighbors around the property. This is our second time to come, and I made just a little presentation. And I said, you know, what's really strange about this vision that we have is that in many ways, this church was birthed out of a bunch of small groups. I said, hey, if wouldn't it be cool to get together on a Sunday and and uh, come together? And that's really how this uh, was launched. And so in many ways, we were a small group church that turned into uh, just a group that kind of came together on Sundays. And many of you uh, are part of those groups at your clubs or wherever, or, you know, golf facilities and in the valleys. It relates to links. And, of course, now Church of the Red Door, we have our uh, many other groups that are involved. But uh, it's an exciting thing. Thrilled to have everybody there. Is Tracy here, too? I don't even see. Tracy Hansen, there she is, LPGA Tour. Superstar in my mind. She's my favorite LPGA Tour player. So she's here. And uh, so we're thrilled to have all of them here. All right, you ready to roll? Let's, let's pray. Let's talk to God before we get going here. You ready? Lord, we are so grateful for you. We're so grateful for your presence. Uh, we anticipate that we were turned from the law. We were turned over from the law, which was condemning and killing and wiped us out, to uh, not just to Christianity. We were turned over to guidance by the Spirit, uh, the promise to Abraham originally, as a, what the Apostle Paul said, the promise was the Spirit. So now we are under the Spirit leading. And uh, Paul was so clear to say, uh, all those who are led by the Spirit, now these are the sons, and I would add daughters of God. So we want to be led by you this morning as a group, as a worshiping community, Lord, a community that comes together and loving one another because of you and obviously being able to love the Father because of you, Jesus. So we ask that your presence would be with us, that your Spirit would guide us this morning as we continue this journey Lord, that you prescribed through the nation of Israel hundreds and hundreds of years ago, 
for our instruction. Be with us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if, if you're new to this, we've been going through this, and I realize I, it takes a, at least a couple of minutes for those who, of you who are new to us. We're going through what I'm calling the Exodus template. It helps us navigate the unseen realm. How do we act in the unseen realm? Where do we go? What are we supposed to do? A lot of people come to Christianity and they say, if you'll say this prayer or you'll go through this catechism or you'll do this or whatever it is, whatever prescription there is, then somehow you now will become a Christian. And then we do that and then we say, okay, by now I'm supposed to kind of do good and love my neighbor as myself and all that's true. And yet there's no real prescription in our own minds as to what happens next. What, is, what are the steps? Are there even any steps? And so this was one of the primary purposes for which Israel was, uh, come in, came into existence through Abraham, who was the first Jew, if you will. And their journey in the physical is our journey in the spiritual. So we've, we followed them out of Egypt, which was a type of the world. We followed them out from under the slavery of Pharaoh, who was a type of Satan. We saw Moses lead them out, who was a prefiguring of Jesus. Uh, we'll see more of that this morning. And then they went through the Red Sea, which Paul says was their baptism. They were baptized. We're baptized now. We go through the Red Sea. And then where do we go after we get baptized? First, we repent. We, we're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. We receive the Holy Spirit. But that baptism after that, just like Jesus, the Spirit came on him. He was baptized. The Spirit came on him. And the Bible simply says, and the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested, and he did. He was there not 40 years like the nation of Israel. He was there only 40 days. Way to go, Jesus. That's awesome. You didn't have to wander around for 40 years. You, you made it through in 40 days. And then he came back and launched his ministry as he did what? Again, cross the Jordan now to begin his ministry. That's what we saw last week. What, what, did it, what is it to be a crosser? Are you a crosser? Are you a Jordan crosser? Do you see yourselves as a crosser? Do you even think in those terms? Is that a construct in your mind by which you can say, yes, I, I know I'm in the wilderness or I've, I'm a new believer and I want to get baptized and or now you've gotten baptized maybe and now you're in the wilderness and maybe you've been there for a while, but your goal should always be, I want out of this wilderness, I want to cross the Jordan. And we saw the, strangely last week, the very first thing that in Joshua chapter 5 that happened um, is that God said, okay, now circumcise them again. And you're like, are you kidding me? After all this, now again, this is a new generation and the purpose was that because they hadn't been circumcised, but my take on that is that it, it is a weakening thing. And, and so last week we looked that Paul said, my power is perfected in weakness. In the unseen realm, in the unseen realm, we don't move according to what, you know, the power structure of the world. We move in a whole different realm. The leaders in the kingdom are the servants. The leaders in the kingdom are are the humble. The leaders in the kingdom are those who have been, had their minds renewed. The leaders in the kingdom work out of weakness their own, and yet God's power in them is then perfected in that weakness. And so the first thing that happened to them is that God said, okay, let's weaken. And they did. And that's what happened. And then my speculation was, is it's a picture of what happens with the heart. So in the physical realm, they couldn't do heart surgery, uh, but the heart, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the what comes out of our mouth is the word. And then we go back to Mark 4, 
and the seed was the word. So really out of our heart comes the seed that then produces fruit. As I was praying with Tess as we were coming here this morning, it's always the same. I said, Tess, I know you probably don't fully grasp this, but it's these words that will change people's lives. Tess, it's these words that have changed your mother's and mine lives. Our lives have been radically changed because words create thoughts and thoughts create actions. So we are a function of the words that we eat, that we ingest. Then they go into our heart. So what happened for them in circumcision, it allowed the physical seed to get to produce fruitfulness. Our hearts then now are circumcised as prophesied. And if we're crossers, what should be flowing, the overflow of our heart should be the word of God, which everywhere that goes, life, things that, are, that were dead come to life. And that is called fruitfulness on the other side of the Jordan. Are you with me? That's what we looked at last week. Now let's pr press forward. Okay, so uh, I want you to go to verse 8 of Joshua chapter 5, if you have your Bibles this morning. And, uh, and by the way, I will just say verse 7, uh, it, we didn't get here last week. Let's start in verse 7. Their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised, circumcised them along the way. Can I just say this about that? He raised the children up in their parents' place. Can I tell you, if you choose not to be a crosser, God will raise somebody else up in your calling. Let me say that again. We all have a choice in my view. We have a choice. How fruitful are we going to? And Jesus even said, you know, some are going to produce 30-fold. Some are going to produce 60-fold. Some are going to produce 100-fold. It's all good soil, but some are going to be more fruitful than others. That, I mean, Jesus was pretty clear about that. He gives us the parable of the talents and the parable of the mina, uh, minas. And uh, similarly, you see something. You see production, you see sometimes 100% producing, and uh, sometimes we're given varying levels of gifts, but it's all the same. The one who had two and produced two more talents, uh, God said in the parable, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And the one who produced five, who was given five, again, 100%, 100% was given the same admonition uh, when he came back to take an account of those people's lives. And he says, well done, again, good and faithful servant, still 100%. If I don't, I know without a shadow of a doubt, I don't think that I am some extraordinary special person. Uh, if I fail to walk into the fullness of my calling, I believe that God will raise somebody else up that was supposed to, that will do what I was maybe called to do. I, I, that's the way I view it. And you say, well, how does that merge with the sovereignty of God? And isn't it kind of, you know, the sovereignty of God is such that uh, he plans it and he brings it to pass. I believe all that, but I, I, I always hold these in a dynamic tension. There's a duality in Scripture in which, yes, I know God's sovereignty will stand, but yet there's a culpability on my part. I have to make decisions. Do I aspire to be a crosser? Do you aspire to be a crosser? If not, he'll raise somebody else up in your place. Now, verse 8. Now, when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Good idea. Then the Lord said to Joshua, now catch this. Now, we, we had alluded to this. This is almost, uh, this is over eight months ago. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal, which means a wheel or rolling. That's what that means in Hebrew, to this day. Now, 
you know, at first you could just kind of read over that, and I've, you know, but that word, it's very important to understand that word in the Hebrew, that reproach is kerpa in the Hebrew, and what that means is the disgrace or the shame happens, and it's finally rolled away. Now, let me tell you something. When you first come to know Jesus, that happens in your, that happens in a legal sense, but it takes a while where you begin to walk in freedom from the disgrace and shame that you walked in in Egypt as a slave. It doesn't happen overnight. Now, legally, you're justified before God. You're a child of God. You are ap- you're loved. You're be- part of the beloved. Even when your behavior doesn't meet the standards of what a crosser one day will need to meet where there's been substantive transformation in who you are and how you think about reality. In fact, if you'll go back to Exodus chapter 17, excuse me, 13, verse 17, we'll revisit something we looked at a number of weeks back. Exodus 13, 17. Now listen to what it says. It says, when the Pharaoh had let the people go, that's, that's when you come out of Egypt and you go through your baptism, you're a brand new believer. You're being released from slavery in terms of this template. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near Why? Because the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. What does that mean? When you're a new believer and you think about what's on the other side and you think about all these things and you're still living with some shame and regret and disgrace of, because you're so close to your life. In fact, you may be still suffering fallout. I, that was certainly the case with me. I gave my life to Christ, but it was years of suffering fallout from the dark-hearted life that I had lived for so many years. In fact, in some ways, people who knew me 20, 30 years ago, and they, they see me now, they still perceive that I'm that person. And yet Paul, as we'll see in a minute, says we don't recognize people according to the flesh anymore. We don't, we don't look at them on the outside. Oh, he's big wig. He had a, built a big business or he's, a, he's an attorney or he's a, he's a doctor. Or he's, he's, a, he's, a great, he's a great player. We don't recognize people, not in the unseen realm. We look for humility. People who've been through the wilderness and have gone through what I'll call the wilderness work, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. See, they weren't ready. Why? They might change their mind. They see what's going on, and we'll see that a little bit later this morning. That's exactly what had happened when they saw the land flowing with milk and honey. They freaked out, except for two of them that we've been talking about. So it's also important, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, it's very clear, and there's nothing more important in church churches advancing is that the leadership passes certain criteria. Paul outlines those for both Timothy, and then he also in his letter to Titus, listen to what he says, not a new convert. If you're going to look for somebody in leadership, not someone who's just gotten through their baptism, has nothing to do with how much they're trying or anything else, not anybody, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. What does that mean? Well, evidently, Satan had been given a very lofty rule, place to rule in the heavenly realm. And then he began to think, well, I'll rise up and be like God. And and what happened? Now, nobody might say that in their words, but they're looking to try to sustain an identity thing. A lot of people come into the church when they first come to Christ, and, you know, their identity has been so beaten down because they've been slaves to sin for so long. They're looking to recover some identity, 
And if you allow them, and even if they want to, if you allow them in a place of leadership, they're still, it, when that, in fact, that word in the Greek is inflated. It's like a bladder that's inflated with like smoke and air. That's, the, that's what this means in the Greek as opposed to solid substance. It can easily be popped and then all of a sudden. New believers, no matter how well-intentioned they are, they have not done wilderness work yet. You say, well, who do you look for in leadership at Church of the Red Door? I look, gift is the third or fourth thing down the list, actual gifting. You'd think it'd be number one. It's not. Gifting is not the primary thing I look for when I partner with people. You know what I look for? The character of Christ, that aroma of Christ, humility, passion. You know that when they see war, they're not going to bail. You know it. In fact, they're... Well, I'm looking for the wilderness work to have been done. In fact, I'm looking for people because what does the wilderness do? It, shattered a, it shatters us in many ways. It shatters us in many ways. And you say, well, how, how, can this, how is this even positive? In fact, I put this off on my wife. She goes, Jeff, she goes, you know, all this stuff about crossing, you're kind of making it, you know, war and all this, you're kind of making it sound not very appetizing. I mean, I don't even, you know, it just, it seems so bleak the way you're describing it. War and battle and wilderness and, you know, and Jesus came to give abundant life. And I mean, how is this parent? And so I'll throw this back on my wife. One of her, one of her favorite movies is a movie called The Family Man, okay? So let me tell you just a little bit. I'm going to set this scene up. We're going to play this little scene, but I think it's appropriate. It's a beautiful analog. It's a very interesting story. It's one of her top three. I mean, you talk about her top three movies of all time. The Family Man is one of them. Nicolas Cage and uh, Tia Leone. Yeah, Tia Leone is the wife. And so he's a big Wall Street. Uh, he, he, he's the president of an investment firm, and he drives a Ferrari, and he's got, he's got all the tailored suits, not the $70 suits. He's got the, you know, the $3,000 suits, and they're all lined up just perfectly, and they're not squunched in because he didn't have enough space. They're all like here, and there's another suit over here, and another suit over here. It's just exactly like he wants life to be, and he's not married. You know, he's kind of chasing the girls and things. I mean, he's the absolute consummate bachelor. He's got this, you know, penthouse thing on Wall Street in New York. He's living the Life And he wakes up. It's a little bit like a, a wonderful life. He wakes up one morning, and he wakes up in bed with this Tia Leon. He's like, what? He's, he can't imagine what's going on. And all of a sudden, he's no longer that guy. He wakes up in a different life. And what he finds is that he's now a tire salesman, <laughs> a tire salesman in Jersey. And he's got two kids, and they have no money, and the Ferrari's gone, and he's driving a van. And he's trying to make sense of what's going on. And now he and his wife, uh, who's now his wife, because he's living this life, uh, they've gone out to this fancy dinner, which would have not probably been near as fancy as anything he had ever experienced in his first life. And then I'm going to give you an analog that I think will hopefully give you, give you some insight. But watch this clip. <laughs> Bad for a tire salesman from New Jersey. I have my moments. You gotta try one of these. God, I miss that taste. 
I need to tell you something. I think it may help us, but there's a slight chance it could make things worse. I'm living someone else's. I feel like I'm living someone else's life. I remember I used to walk to work and, uh, I had a warm bialy in my hand and a hot cup of coffee from Dean and DeLuca and a crisp feeling of the Wall Street Journal. A smell of leather from my briefcase. I, I, I used to be so sure about everything, confident, you know. I, I, I knew exactly who I was and, and what I wanted. And then one morning I woke up and suddenly it was all different. Worse, do you mean? No. Well, maybe a few things, but, but mostly just different. And that's okay. But I never used to be like this, Kate. I was the guy who had it all figured out. I had no doubts. I had no regrets. No. Now, now I don't. I don't have it all figured out. Me neither. But you always seem so certain. Do you think there aren't mornings when I wake up and wonder what am I doing in New Jersey? Yeah. 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 My office is a dump. I answer my own phone and you've seen my paycheck. But your paycheck is a disgrace to paycheck. <laughs> Can you imagine a life where everything was just easy? You know, like, where you ask for things and then people just bring them to you? It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I think about it, too. I do. I wonder about what kind of life I would have had if I hadn't married you. And? And then I realize I've just erased all the things in my life that I'm sure about. You. And the kids. Good things. Yeah. What are you sure about? I'm sure that right now, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than here with you. So, now let's apply... Is it, how does this apply? It applies in a beautiful way. Do you ever have a regret for marrying Jesus? I mean, has there ever been a regret? Like, you know, I didn't know you were going to take me down this way, you know, uh, this paycheck, this whatever, you know, you start crossing over is hard. This battle zone is hard, but there's a beauty in it once you're in it. That's the strange part of following Jesus. He tells you straight up front, pick up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself and you'll find life. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it anyway. If you'll follow me, and of course, if we draw the analogy out, what was it? It was children, you know, and we talked about spiritual children become, you know, in the, anal in the analog here, I mean, he's, he's crossed over and he's like, he's surprised. I, there's nowhere I'd rather be.
And here's been my experience with people who cross the Jordan, is that they say exactly that. It's still not like it was in their minds, like it used to be the good old times, the nostalgic, you know, other days. And when challenges in the war zone happen, you just don't balk at it because you're like, there's no place that I'd rather be. And so I wanted to balance this with, yeah, it looks a little bleak, but it's not bleak on the other side. And that's what we discover when we began to see God use us in profound and miraculous ways within the context of our gifting and then within the context of a community of faith. It's missional. What do you think we, what, all this money and this place and this, you know, this building and all this, and sometimes I just go, wow, we, do, we really, do we really need all that? And uh, there's a vision behind this, folks. There's a vision in this crossing, not, not only just for Church at the Red Door, but for other ministries in this valley. And, you know, you have the Lynx National Board. I can see them coming in and filling it with Lynx fellowship leaders from all over the country and our church supporting that and getting behind that and seeing this beautiful marriage between what our church is doing and then us being able to walk into our calling to facilitate things that go well beyond the borders of the Coachella Valley. It's powerful, but you're going to have to cross. You're going to have to cross. You know, this Gilgal, when I think about it, 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 really, it really affects me. You know, this place of rolling away the reproach. You know, here's what happens when you finally have gone and done your wilderness work. Is that you're not afraid to share your testimony of where you used to be. You're not afraid to talk about someone struggling in sin and saying, I was there. You're no longer trying to hold, hang behind a facade. What's happened is you just say, look... It's almost in my testimony. Paul begins to say, it's my testimony, you know? And it shows the glory of God through someone as weak as me. And you know, you glory in uh, some of that because it's God now living in you. It's not you anymore. It's God living in you. He's rolled away the disgrace and the shame. If you want to cross, the place of Gilgal is a place where that shame is rolled away. But you're not afraid to talk about it. You're, not, you're transparent. It's beautiful. You don't have to put up any facades anymore. That's what humility at its core is anyway, isn't it? It's just a place where we can go in and be ourselves and not have to put on all these masks and live behind these things. You know, we have a church mask and we have a business mask and we have a home mask and all this other kind of thing. We can actually become who God created us to be. It's a beautiful place when that, that shame, that disgrace is rolled away. And that's what's happening here. Now, what's also fascinating is we read the next verse here, verse 10. It says, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, Gilgal, excuse me, they observed the Passover. On the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. Now, notice they're observing the Passover and they're right on the plains of Jericho, which is going to be their first battle. They're crossing, man, we're going. This is... The crosser is all in, and, and here they are, and they are observing Passover. I'm going to speak on that in a minute. He says, and that's what's interesting, verse 12, the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land. And we had talked about this before, but let me, it, it deserves repeating. The manna ceases. See, in the wilderness, you're being fed because you don't know how to walk these, this in this world yet. So you need discipling, training, reproof, rebuke, correction, 
for training in righteousness so that you might be equipped. I mean, that's what the whole uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 is about, right? Uh, this is for our equipping and our training and our so we can become uh, people who actually are impactful on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, and when that happens, the manna ceases. So what that means, in my view, is now you are a self-feeder. You're not totally dependent on others to feed you. Now, we'll still, even people, there are many in here that could be standing up here right now and teaching. We just have an extraordinary church of leaders, pastors, and I mean, I just look around. It's, it's amazing all the knowledge. I'm still learning. We're all still learning. But in a general sense, you can get up and you can do your devotions. I called, I called somebody uh, this morning and they was like, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm well, actually, I called Bob Thompson yesterday. I said, what are you doing? He said, Joan and I are in the middle of our devotions, and, and I'm glad you called. And Devotions, he's, they're feeding themselves. They've crossed. They, they, they don't need the manna to be fed to them. They're able to be fed by the Lord himself, which is awesome, which is awesome. Now, uh, there is a place, again, where spiritual food is not just reading the word. Crossers do that, but there is even a place now where your food comes slightly differently. And you'll remember this, John chapter 4, starting in verse 31. And we, we've looked at this in some studies before, but let's catch this. John 4, 31. Now, meanwhile, the, remember, he's talking to the woman at the well, and, and she's there, and they're having this conversation. He says, I'm the living water. And his disciples come back, and they're like, we got to feed, feed him. He's got to have some food. He says, and the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, you have to eat. And, and, of course, he said, well, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And that kind of mystical, ooh, Jesus, what are you talking about? We don't, we don't understand where you're going with this. I have food that you don't know about. And then verse 33, and the disciples were saying, well, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? And then verse 34, <clears throat> and Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So crossers realize that some of their spiritual nutrition, their food, they're no longer being fed, they're self-feeders, and they have a source of food in the unseen realm, which is actually doing the work, walking in their gifting. Two sources. I can read it and start to understand it. That's wilderness work. And there's another source of food when I actually, remember I brought Bob Rulis, my friend, up. This last week, uh, he's, he and his wife went back to cold, chilly Montana. And, uh, and we were talking about it. He goes, in FCA, to the kids, we say, you know, we're trying to learn the playbook. And that at some point, he goes, now you got to go run the play. <laughs> and as simple as that is, I mean, it's a lot of people just like, oh, let's just go to Bible study, go to Bible study, go to Bible study, go to Bible study. And they never run the play. And he's like, we tell the kids, you know, first you got to learn the playbook. That's important. But then you're going to want to run the play. And so learning the playbook is food. That's manna. But then running the play is also food, according to Jesus. Does that make sense? So running the play. So that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of Canaan. Excuse me for my guys in the booth up there. Verse 12. And they were eating of the land that was producing, the Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And if you'll remember, they're in the presence of their enemies now. They're living among the enemies but remember Psalm 23, verse 5 again, again, bringing to your mind. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right in the middle of the battle, I'm getting fed. That's what that means. 
You're feeding me right in the middle of my enemies. That's so weird. You're preparing this buffet, this beautiful feast, right in the middle of war. Exactly. When you walk into the fullness of your calling, you are being fed by it. I learned more from running the play, or at least as much from running the play as I do from actually knowing what the playbook says. And until you actually apply yourselves to running the play, you really, you, it's even hard to understand a lot of this until you really need it because you're right in the middle of the play. <clears throat> Let's go to the next verse here. Now, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, and this is, this is the last thing we're going to talk about this morning as we press on, but it says, now, this is a wild encounter. This is such a wild encounter. So there was a man who was standing opposite him. So it's clearly a, a, a this, who is this? With his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, now catch this, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Who are you for? Whose side are you on? Because we're about to go on and fight these people. <clears throat> now, who is that? Now, not all theologians, but the, I would say the dominant, dominant view among theologians is this is, again, is the, the head of the hosts of angels. This is the angel of the Lord. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus. I know that sounds wild if you've never understood this, and I don't have time. There's a, a depth of study that can go in. But if you care to accept it kind of thing, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. And who are you for, us or them? He goes, now NIV says, neither what do you mean? We've already established who Jesus is for. He's for the world. I came to save the world. For God so loved the world that Jesus came, that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is in it for everybody. And let's establish something. This sets up in their minds, we're the good guys. You're the bad guys. Who are you for? The good guys or the bad guys? And what the law tells us and what their failure from all of not being able to live by the law in the wilderness, what it says is, here's the deal. You're all bad guys. You all have dark hearts. There aren't good guys and bad guys. You're all bad guys. I'm for neither. I'm for neither. I don't know which one it is. Neither or neither. But I, I, I'm not for either one of them. And I'm kind of for all of you. You say, well, how could he go in and wipe them out? Now, let's go back. Let's, let's not just use... It still is a people because God does show us justice and time. It's really the only place in Scripture that he comes in with justice and time. I mean, it's just amazing. And even then, we, as we're going to see next week with this thing with Rahab, even right in the middle of it, he's still thinking about mercy. He wants to extend mercy. See, we, we put God in such a box, it's amazing. How could he tell them to go out and wipe out man, woman, and child? We get so offended by this, to wipe this people out, this genocide. That's why I don't read the Bible, because it's full of genocide. Well, first of all, it's not full of genocide. Understand something. But on the other side, when we go, where was God during, uh, you know, the Holocaust? Why did he come in in the very from day one and just wipe out those Nazis? And what happened in Rwanda? And where's God? And where, why won't he come in and bring justice? When he comes in and brings justice once in human history... I'm not saying he's only once, but in the biblical narrative, when he brings justice, these people were sacrificing their own children to other gods. They were throwing them into the fire and burning them according to their, their gods that were nothing. They were just idols. They were nothingness. That's what that means in the Hebrew. 
You know, people say, we get mad at God when he acts and we get mad at God when he doesn't act. And we feel righteously indignant on both sides. Be careful when you're dealing with a loving, merciful God. God this whole book is a love letter. But he does give us a picture of justice. Why? Is that, is that right? Well, I'm into the Jesus thing where it's all just about love and compassion. Have you really read what Jesus said? About life and eternal life and heaven and hell and eternal destination. Have you even read what Jesus says? But the point is he's patient and long-suffering, not wishing any to perish. Now, what's fascinating about this is this figure, whoever this figure is. He says, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Now, notice this doesn't happen. This shouldn't happen with an angelic created being. Joshua fell on his face to the earth. Now catch this, bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Now he's calling him his Lord. And he's on the ground. I mean, he's face plant on the ground. And the captain of the Lord, Lord's host said to Joshua, look at this, remove your sandals from your feet for the place which you are standing is holy. Now, why would he say that? An angel would never say that. Like, I'm, I'm here, so this is holy ground. But Jesus can say that. Do you ever think about the time, you know, when Jesus actually came to earth, even uh, when the angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to be one, you're going to be with a holy child. <laughs> okay, That's, that, was, that was what the angel told Mary before she ever was even impregnated with the spermata, if you will, the very seed of God. You're going to have holy offspring is what he told Mary. Simeon, then Jesus comes in and Simeon's there and Anna and they're in the temple when Jesus is now, after Jesus is born and they're being dedicated and he says, this is the glory of thy people Israel. Glory? Who is this character, this child? The glory of Israel? The glory, that's reserved for God, right? The glory of Israel? Or Jesus himself when he's 12 or so and he, he find him in the temple, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Father, your father, you're claiming God is your father? Who do you think you are, God? I mean, you're the offspring of God? Jesus would say, yes. Or maybe when they came and he said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. It took all these years, you know, uh, many, many decades to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days. And he was talking about the temple of his body. He says something, and then he goes on, he says, something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself, something greater than the, the temple who owns, you know, the holy place and the Ark of the Covenant and God's very presence dwells. He says something is greater than the temple here. Oh, interesting. Or John the Baptist, when Jesus comes down and John gets the inspiration, realizes it, and he says, baptize me. He says, I'm, I'm unworthy even to untie your sandals. Are you following me? This is what happens around Jesus, holy ground. Now, do you remember anywhere else in Scripture where this occurred, where Jesus, uh, where there was this holy ground thing? Well, let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. And then I'm going to give you my take on this. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, very interesting story. Many of you will know it as the burning bush. A couple things. Boy, some amazing things we can, we can pull out of this that are so instructive for 21st century living. 
Exodus 3 verse 1 says, Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, so he's in the wilderness, right, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And again, here we have the angel of the Lord, this figure, this enigmatic, mysterious figure shows up and appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw, now catch verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. I wish I had, what's the guy I, the, in the field of dreams? Uh, what's his name, the African-American gentleman? James Earl Jones. I wish I had James Earl Jones to say, Moses. Mo I wish I had his voice. I don't have it. Moses, Moses. And, and, then, and what does he say? He says, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he goes on and says he's going to lead the slaves, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, what I find fascinating about this, we have another burning bush moment here with this, this figure that appears right at the crossing of the Jordan. Now, I think one thing we know is that Moses was a prefiguring of Jesus, right? So Moses goes into the world begins to do miracles, which eventually leads to blood being shed, which eventually lets the people go free from slavery. So Moses is a prefiguring of Jesus. That's the template that we're looking at, right? So Moses goes. Now Joshua is again going in as a prefiguring of Jesus. All that was given to Moses was now turned over to Joshua. Joshua is on holy ground. And here goes Joshua. And then the same thing. And then they cross. And then Jesus comes, not needing holy ground. Everywhere he goes is holy ground because he's the holy one of Israel. Okay? And then Jesus, and now we're being called to cross. And when we go, it's holy ground. I think this. I think there are holy ground moments in every single one of our lives. First thing first, we have to recognize them. What's fascinating to me about this is that he says, Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And verse 4 says, and when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, Moses is like, I got to do this. I got to go look at this. There's something here. There's something calling out to me. He had to notice this. He could have just kept walking. Oh, that's wow. That's wild. Something happened there. And he just kept walking. And the Lord, but it's fascinating to me. And I know this is a little anthropomorphic, but the fact that God says, and when he noticed, when he saw that he turned aside, God's looking for people who are turning aside and they're seeing a holy moment in their lives. I only think there's a few of them in our lives. I think there, there may be lots of moments that you have with God, but I think there are some moments in your life that are so directionally significant that you could call it a moment like this. I think crossing, finally saying, okay, I'm leaving the wilderness and I'm going to go in and I push all my chips in and I'm going to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to be a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you cross, it's this moment. Now, what's fascinating to me also is that Passover was involved in this, and that's exactly what we see here too. So Moses is going in as a prefiguring of Jesus. 
and there's miracles and there's this and then there's Passover and then there's a release. And here they are again. Here's a crossing, there's a Passover and then there's a release and a calling and a confirmation and a beauty here uh, for a group that says we're going to go in. We're going to whatever you say, we're going to say, we're going to do. We're just going to follow you exactly. We're going to do exactly what you tell us to do. Everything you tell us to do, Joshua will do. And the crossers mentality is let's go. So it's always led by the blood. We don't go in in our own power. We go in under the power of the cross. That's why Passover you're passed over in judgment. It's necessitated by blood. That's why we are church at the red door. That's blood. Don't, don't think that's just a Nike swoosh. That's blood all over the door of our life because we realize that as we go into our calling, we want the blood to always go ahead of us. In fact, Deuteronomy 1 says exactly that. It says that the Lord will go before us. And when you see, who is, it, who is the Lord? Revelation 19, you see Jesus with his robes dipped in blood. Is that the blood of somebody else? No, it's his own blood. And he rides out in front of us, if you will. He's our captain. Joshua was just a prefiguring of that. And then Jesus comes and does the same thing, and now we have the same call. I, as I was preparing, and I don't want to be melodramatic here, or <clears throat> but as I was preparing, especially last night, I was, it was about, I don't know, 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was kind of just praying, Lord, what do you want to say? And I, and I redirected and added some verses this morning. And took, I, I just said, Lord, what do you want to say tomorrow? This is, this is your, and I just really felt impressed that the Lord said, for many of our folks, it's going to be, tomorrow might be a holy ground moment for them. They're like, okay, I, I choose to cross. I'm tired of the wilderness. Now, if, like I said, if you're a new believer and you haven't gone and been constructively transformed yet by the renewing, Romans 12, 2, the renewing of your mind yet, I, I get that. But some of you, this might be that take off your shoes moment. You don't realize that this is a holy moment. It's a Passover moment. And then you choose, today I choose. And only you know. Nobody's going to prescribe for you what that looks like in terms of how it plays out in your life or anything. It's for you and the Lord. It's only you. But I've had those moments. There's just been a couple of them in my life. And okay, let's go. And I felt like, why? Who are you for? I'm for the world, so I want you to go in and see these people released from slavery. That's this valley, slaves to sin. I want you to go in and battle for their souls. I'll lead you. It'll be my power through you. This is really just give me your body, a living sacrifice. And in that moment, you cross over. And you start out weak. And we're going to see next week exactly what, that, what a battle actually looks like in the unseen realm when you are powers being perfected in weakness. It's not you. It's all him. But you've got to listen and be humble enough to do whatever he says. Does that make sense? So maybe this is that moment. So I'm going to have Pastor Paul come up and transition into communion. And maybe during this communion moment, you know, I didn't, we don't have any plan or preparation in terms of this communion. I don't know what they're going to do or anything, but maybe somehow it could be in some ways integrated into understanding what this moment could be as we take the bread and the wine, if you will, together.